0: We're back in Genesis, um, and we are working through the book of Genesis because we want to know God's redemptive work, all right? And if you want to know God's redemptive work, where do you have to start? You have to start at the beginning, amen? Amen. And so we're starting at the book of Genesis. If you remember when we talked about this at the beginning of our series, the book of Genesis breaks down into two parts, essentially two parts. Um, You have Genesis 1 through 11, which are sort of the pillars, all right? So you're looking at how God created this world, you're looking at how He birthed humanity here. The very beginning origins of you and me being in this room tonight are found in some of these stories in chapters 1 through 11. You see cities that are birthed in these particular chapters. We see how sin entered into this world. It just gives us a lot of answers to many of the questions that we have about how and why this world was created the way that it was. And then in the latter part, you see in Genesis 12 through 50, the patriarchs patriarchs of our faith. If you're really wrestling with questions, well, how did this whole Christianity thing even really begin to get off the ground? Like, where, is, where were the origin parts of this? You have to look all the way back to the very beginnings in the book of Genesis. And so that's why we're wrestling with this particular book. We want to know the redemptive work that God has done throughout the whole of Scripture. And so you have to know where we've come from to know we're also where we're going. You know what I'm saying? And so we left off the week before Thanksgiving looking at Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve are ushered out of the garden, all right? The fall has occurred. Adam and Eve have sinned. God has dealt with them in their sin by ushering them out of the garden. And if we're reading this chapter properly, if we're reading between Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4, you should have lots of questions that are going on in your mind. There should be so many things that are running through your brain about what God is doing and what He is at work here in these particular chapters. Questions like, What will God do with Adam and Eve? They're sent out of the garden, they're out of the presence of God. And so, will they stay together? Like, will they stay, remained married? Well, are they going to have a family? Like, are they going to be able to actually step into this thing that God has called them to be fruitful and multiply? Are they going to be able to do this outside of the garden? We don't know. You're left at Genesis chapter 3 with kind of like your hands up. I I don't know. You have questions like, what will the effect of sin be? The ground is cursed. Adam's to work the ground. So what does that look like? Does Adam's fingernails look like my kids where they just have dirt all under them because that's all he's got? You know what I'm saying? Like, what, how is he going to go work the ground? Is it actually going to work with him? Is he going to be able to provide produce and food for his family? The ground's cursed. We don't know. You also, I mean, they're exposed to the elements now, right? They're out of the garden. They're out of the protection of God in the garden. And so they're exposed to the elements. So are they going to be able to find shelter? What about food and water and the necessary resources for a life? Is God going to provide for them? Then you have the biggest question of all. It's like, is God going to fulfill his promise? You have Genesis 3.15 where God gives the verdict to Satan that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Is God going to, is God going to keep his promise? Is that like, when is he going to keep it? How is he going to keep it? Like all these are questions that should be running through your head before you even get into Genesis chapter 4. And so, man, as you're wrestling with all these questions, what you have to look at Genesis chapter 4 is it's almost like a case study, right? It's almost like a case study for what life outside of the garden is going to look like. We're beginning to see just, man, what is God going to do it's almost like that, you, that case study, the, the marshmallow experiment with the like, little kids. You know, Put one marshmallow in front of them. Just don't eat it, and I'm going to leave. Come back. I'll bring two if you don't, haven't eaten it. Like, it's at the utmost level of the case study of like what is, how is humanity going to respond to all these questions? This is something they've never dealt with before. So what is their response going to be? What's God's response going to be? What is he going to do? And so... Genesis 4 does not disappoint because the story of Cain and Abel is wild, right? It is insane. And so we're going to look at this story in three different movements. We're going to look at the story first, the sacrifice. Then we're going to look at the temptation, and then we're going to look at the aftermath. The sacrifice, the temptation, and the aftermath. And then I'm going to, I'm going to close this out. After we've kind of worked through the story, I'm going to draw some implications out of this story for us and just kind of work through some vision for us for the remainder of this year, all right? There's some things that I think you draw out of this passage that God has been working inside of us, the church leadership, for what he really, God has for us as a church for all of 2023, and so we're going to land by just wrestling with some of that vision, what it could look like, how we're going to put it to practice here in our church, all right? So let's dive into the story. I'm going to read through just excerpts of the story. We're going to stop, we'll wrestle with it, and then we'll continue to move forward, all right? So we're going to look at the sacrifice. Starts in verse 1. Here's what it says The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. So already we're beginning to see some of these questions that you have from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 4 coming, you know, like we're getting the answers where there's fruition that's happening. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. All right, so stop and remember in Genesis chapter 3, Eve is the one that's questioning God's provision. She's the one that's questioning God's commands, his instruction. And then we see a different swing happen here where now there's a faith that's taking place in Eve. She's living up to her name that God has provided life verse 2, she also gave birth to his brother. This is Cain's brother, Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but look at this. He did not have regard for Cain and his offering. And what was his, res- his response? Cain was furious and he looked despondent. All right, so right away we see that God's answering these questions that we have. Yes, Adam and Eve are going to have a family. They have Cain and Abel. And just imagine what that was like, ladies. All right, so Eve is the first person to give birth in this world. All right? You all have the experience of seeing other ladies get pregnant, and so you can almost anticipate what's going on. Eve gets pregnant, and then her belly starts to grow. <laughs> can you imagine what that's like? Like, Adam is getting questions from Eve, of, like, is my body changing? And like, you don't want to answer that question, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and like, he, they don't have an answer. It's like, no, you look great, right? Like, you look awesome. I, I see no changes, Right? That's what's happening here. Just bonkers by the idea of this first, first birth that's taken place in this world. We also see how the family worked, right? Cain was a farmer. He worked the land. Abel is a shepherd. And so Adam has figured out how you carry out work in this world. He's provided and divided, like right? He's put his sons to work. They're going and putting their hands to work in the fields. You also see that there's still worship, Cain and Abel bring sacrifices to God, so even east of Eden, God still relates with humanity. This is something that, like, from the outset, we should be like, praise God. Even after the sin that happened in the garden, Adam and Eve have been removed, there's still worship that's happening, God still relates with humanity. Praise God. This takes place. And here's how Moses reports how this whole sacrificial system went down. Cain, being a farmer, brings God a sacrifice of produce from the land. Abel, being a shepherd, brings a sacrifice of a sheep to God as a a sacrifice to him. And God has regard for one and does not have regard for the other. Regard basically meaning he has favor that he accepts this particular sacrifice. He accepts Abel's and he rejects Cain's. Now, this should make us pause. Praise God that there's worship, but right away, immediately, we see that there's appropriate worship and there's inappropriate worship. You see that? What is it? Like, what? We, from the outset, you see that there's a particular thing that God is looking for in our worship. And so what, what is it? What's this thing that God is looking for? Well, you find it in the details in Cain and Abel's sacrifice. So Cain presents a produce, some produce from the land. You see this just generic, nondescript description of his particular sacrifice, but it's different with Abel's, isn't it? When Abel's is presented to us here in Genesis chapter 4, it's brought to us that Abel brings some of the firstborn of his flocks, and then he also brings the fatty portions. So look, it seems here that Abel goes out of his way to please God with his sacrifice that he brings to God, while Cain is just going through the motions, right? So Abel gives God his best. The firstborn, these are the ones that have grown up. These are the ones that have matured the most, which means they've eaten most of the land, and which means they also have a lot of excess fat inside of them. And so they're bringing the biggest, the baddest, what, what anything that's the best for God, that's what Abel is bringing. All we get of Cain is that he just has some of the produce from the land. And so... Here's what we should see regarding our worship. God cares nothing about your stuff, but he does care about your heart. When it comes to your worship, God is not looking for your stuff. He's looking for you. He wants your heart. He wants the central aspect of your whole entire life. Abel brings his heart to God because of the sacrifice that he brings in Cain just brings just the excess. You know what I'm saying? That's what we see here in this particular chapter. Cain's, Abel's sacrifice is not accepted because it's an animal over produce, like God's some vegan That's not what's happening here. God did accept Abel's sacrifice because of his heart. He wanted to bring what is best. He wanted to go and please God with what he brought in his sacrifice to him. Now, Psalm 51 speaks to this. This isn't just like a particular story of where God favors one son over another. We see that this is God's heart. Psalm 51 says this verse 16 and 17 you do not want a sacrifice or I would give it you are not pleased with a burnt offering the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit another way of saying that a broken heart you will not despise a broken and humbled what heart oh god So look God doesn't change the way that he responded to Cain and Abel is the same way that he responds to you and me when it comes to our worship. God doesn't care about your stuff, he cares about your heart. And we see the Bible say this repeatedly over and over in the Bible. We see it when it comes to our ties, God doesn't care about our amount, he cares about the sacrifice of our amount. You see this with the widow's mites, right? You have the the Pharisees that are bringing large portions of sums that are bringing these large gifts to the church. And then Jesus looks over and sees this widow bringing two mites, drops them into the basket. Jesus says, she's outgiven everybody. Jesus doesn't care about your amount. He does care about your dependency on him and your desire to see him provide for you. When it comes to your prayer, God's not concerned with the eloquence or the length of your prayer, but rather he's, con- he's uh, worried about the sincerity of it, right? Whenever Jesus is giving in the Lord's Prayer, here's how you pray. He says, don't pray like the hypocrites who are trying to be eloquent with their words on the street corners. Don't be like the Gentiles that are just babbling and trying to make these really long prayers until hopefully you can get the ear of God. No, rather he cares about the sincerity Of your prayers. When it comes to your fasting, God does not care about the exterior appearance of yourself, showing off, yeah, I've been fasting, it's been hard, see the weight that I'm losing, which is what most of us think of, amen. But God cares about the appearance of your heart. When it comes to your singing, God could care less about your pitch, but He does care about your conviction by which you sing. These are the things that God cares about when it comes to your worship. He doesn't care about your stuff. He doesn't care about your appearance. He doesn't care about even the things that you're actually bringing him. He wants you. He wants your heart. And this is the outset of the world and we see that this is God's desire in our worship from the very beginning. So look, how are you doing? When it comes to your worship, are you more like Cain Is it lip service and tokenism? Or are you more like Abel? Is God getting your heart? Look, do your heart and your actions of your worship align? You see what I'm saying? Like the things and the actions when you're singing and even if you're lifting your hands, does it model what's happening in your heart? When you're bringing your tithes to the Lord, are you bringing them in such a way that you're saying I'm sacrificing to the extent that I'm gonna trust that you're gonna provide for me or are you just giving out of your excess? How are we doing? Look, God wants your heart. He will provide for you. There's nothing that is beyond his resources or his measure. So you can trust him. You can give him your worship. Give him your heart and you can trust that he will provide. Be like Abel. Don't be like Cain. That's the first thing that we see here in this particular passage. But we see the story continue on. Now we saw at the very end of verse 5 that Cain has a response to God and his reaction to his sacrifice. And we see this fleshed out more for us in the next portion of the story. So verses 5 through 8 is the temptation. Let me read it for us. Here's what it says. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. And then look at eight. Cain said to his brother Abel, "Let's go out to the field." And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So Cain is both mad and sad about God's response to his sacrifice. Now, look, everyone in this room would share the same emotions if you were in Cain's shoes. None of us like to have somebody chosen over us, do we? Like that, it, we want acceptance. We want belonging. And Cain feels like he's lost all of it. And so the response that he has is likely the same emotions that would take place in your heart and my heart as well. Now, God, here's the thing that's great about our God. God meets Cain in his sadness and his anger, all right? God acknowledges and addresses Cain's emotions. Why are you so angry? Why are you despondent? He acknowledges the emotions that are going on inside of Cain, and then God speaks in to Cain's situation. Look at it, verse seven again. If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not what if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desires for you, but you must rule over it. Here's Cain's dilemma. Am I going to give God my heart or am I going to give into my heart? That's what's happening here. Am I going to give into the emotions that I'm feeling and experiencing in my heart or am I going to practice repentance and give God my heart, which I did not do with the sacrifice that I first offered? That's the dilemma that's happening here. And James 1 gives us a very clear pattern of temptation and sin. And it all starts with this dilemma that Cain is working through in our story. Here's what James 1, 14 through 15 has to say. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. You see that? God meets Cain in his desires and his emotions, and he addresses them. Then look at the sequence. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And that's the exact sequence that we see that plays out with Cain's story. Cain gives into the desires of his heart, it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. To Cain takes Abel out to the field and attacks him. And then it gives birth to death. Cain strikes down his brother. Now, look, this should be mind-boggling to us. The world's only two brothers. One has struck down the other. The only brothers the world has ever known. The older brother kills the younger brother. This isn't just homicide. This is fratricide. You kill your sibling, right? Now, um, imagine the measure of what Cain is experiencing inside that would rouse up such a response to strike down his own brother. And it happened in Genesis chapter 4. We see the effects of sin here with Cain and his response to Abel. The original sin, our proclivity towards sin is seen here in Cain. This is what has been passed off to you and me because of the first sin that took place in that garden and so none of us should look at this and say well that's just beyond me whenever you hear people that talk about someone that has struck down another family member a lot of times you hear in those stories that person was somebody that loved their family and you never would have thought that they could have stooped to such low measures that's because the sin and the wickedness that that resides inside of you and me And we see it present here in Genesis chapter four, all right? So look, this should be a lesson for us. We should look at Cain's story and we must learn from his story. When faced with temptation, we must learn from from Cain's failure here, all right? So how do we handle temptation in light of what we see with Cain's story here? How do we fight our heart's proclivity towards sin? How do we fight this thing, this internal desire this bent towards going and sinning in our life now we need to look at what uh, uh, what is not included here in this part of the story all right so God comes he enters into the story he sees Cain's emotions he addresses Cain's situation but do you ever hear a word from Cain you do not Cain is silent God sees and addresses Cain's heart. He remains silent. What lesson do we learn from this? That we fight temptation by speaking. You fight it with prayer. How do we know that? Because that's what Jesus instructs us in the Lord's prayer. It's how he closes out the Lord's prayer, isn't it? What does it say? You know it. What does it say? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from what? The evil one. This is literally how Jesus instructs us to fight temptation. Cain is silent. He doesn't come to this God that if you look throughout the rest of the Bible, that uh, Martin Luther puts it, that God is the inexhaustible fountain that overflows with generosity. The more that you ask, the more and more he continues to give. You see in James chapter 1, um, verse 13, that, or James chapter 1, verse 5, that whenever you come and you ask God for wisdom, it says that God gives wisdom generously and ungrudgingly to all who ask. So, in the midst of these emotions that Cain is dealing with, and whenever God comes and confronts the situation that's taking place in Cain's heart, what does he do? He remains silent. What is our act against fighting against temptation and sin in our life is we pray. We come, we don't remain silent, but we acknowledge what's going on in our heart. And then we bring this to our God who hears our prayers when we pray in the name of Jesus. This is the beautiful thing about our faith, that when we pray in the name of Jesus, that our God hears our prayers. And when we pray in the name of Jesus, and we ask for the wisdom of God, how do we get out of this temptation? God, deliver me from this evil. What 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us is that God is faithful and that he delivers a way out. So whenever you are dealing with temptation, when it feels like something that has come over you that is so strong, look, temptation never comes to you like it is this um junk mail in your inbox right it's easy to recognize you can ignore it and you can trash it no temptation always comes because the evil one knows the desires of your heart he knows what your longings and your desires are when he comes to tempt you he plucks at all those strings And so whenever you're dealing with temptation, it feels really hard, and it feels like there's big desires that you want, and that if you step into this sin, that those desires are going to be fulfilled, and you need to step back and realize the things that are going on in your life, what God has commanded of us, the vision that he's placed before us, the way that he created this world for us to live in relationship with him and to live rightly here and we see those things butt up against one another, this God consciousness for right versus wrong in our life, you have to cry out to your God. You don't remain silent, but you pray. That's how we fight temptation in this life. So look, you gotta learn from Cain in this story. When temptation comes over you, you don't just sit there. You don't just allow the evil one to come with his temptations. You've been given the power of the Holy Spirit to pray. And when we pray, God will deliver you. He, or at least he'll provide you a way out. And you walk in the measure of the power of the Spirit that, has got, that God has given you. Learn from Cain here. You don't have to be like him because of the work that God has done in our life. The gift that has come through Jesus and the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, we see the aftermath of Cain's actions in verses 9 through 16. So here's what it says. I want to just look briefly at um, just what happens in Cain's life, but I think there's bigger ramifications that are going on here, so just stick with me, okay? So here's what verse 9 says. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. And my brother's guardian? Wow. Wow. Then he said, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Now pay attention to Cain's response here, all right? But Cain answered the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me from today from the face of the earth and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. Is there any remorse? Do you see any remorse in Cain's words? No. Am I my brother's guardian? Why should I know? Why should I care? You, you chose Abel over me anyway. Like, you go pay attention to him. What do I have to do with that, God? God comes and strikes down, and he, he lays out the consequence of Cain's sin. There's no remorse. There's no sorrow over what he's done. All he's worried about is his own skin. God, if you cast me out of your presence, then those that I come across as the world begins to be populated, as I go out, Those people are going to come after me. That's all he's worried about. Then the Lord replied to him, and this is astonishing. (laughs) Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. What? God is protecting Cain? And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This land of Nod, if you look at the translation of it, it means wanderers or fugitives. (laughs) Cain is given what he wanted, okay? He's given what he's wanted, He brought a half-hearted gift to God. His heart was not in it. He strikes in vengeance against his brother. He's confronted by God. He cares nothing about what he's done against his only brother in this world. The only concern he has is for his own skin. God gives him the gift and he goes out without any type of fight back. He gets life without God, what he wanted. That's where he goes. Now, the aftermath here, I think, like I said, is larger than what just happens to Cain, all right? Like I said, Cain is to be a lesson to us. <laughs> we should look at the life of Cain and we should look at what happens and transpires in his life and we should learn from his wrongs so that we can live rightly with God. That's what we should look at with Cain here in this, this whole story. But the bigger aftermath here is what about God's promise? Abel's been killed and then Cain's been banished from God's presence, banished from the family. So what about this promise? This Genesis three fifteen promise that there would be a seed that would come from the woman that would crush the serpent's head. The story starts with a lot of promise. I mean if you look at verse one, if you remember Eve's words, I've had a male child with the Lord's help. It almost it's like you're hearing just the inklings of this Hope within Eve that God is already producing and providing the Savior that's to come. And so you see this this Cain who's with God, but then the story ends. Abel is dead. Cain is banished. He's in Nod, the place of wandering and fugitives. And so what now? Now, we get the ability to look back on the story, and so we know how the story ends, right? God provides Seth. He's the third child of Cain and Abel, and it's through Seth that God will one day fulfill his promises through Seth's lineage, but it's in this passage that we get the first sense of how God will fulfill that promise. That's the bigger aftermath that we need to pay attention here. If you, if you know the promise of Genesis 3.15, if you were here with us when we work through it, you would, uh, you would almost view it as like this epic battle that would go down between like two powerful warriors, right? Like, the seed of the woman will crush the, seed of the, the head of the seed of the serpent, right? Like, there's going to be this epic battle that goes down. And this, the seed of the woman is going to strike down the head of the seed of the serpent, and it's going to be incredible. But the book of Hebrews connects the fulfillment of God's promise to the spilled blood of Abel. All right? So Hebrews 12, 24 says this, And to Jesus, the mediator, mediator of a new covenant, Into the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. So, look, God's promise is is fulfilled here through a sacrificial savior who spills his own blood rather than a conquering warrior that spills the blood of another. That's what you see in the very beginnings, the inklings of the work that God's going to do here within this particular story. Look, here's the reality you are a Cain, you're not an Abel every single one of us, including me, you are a Cain, you are not an Abel. All of us have been like Cain and we've brought half-hearted worship to God. Every single one of us. We've all walked in the steps of Cain. We have all, when approached about our particular sin, have been given the same response that Cain gives to God about slaying his own brother. What does that have to do with me? Every single one of us are murderers, according to Jesus. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, that whenever we look at someone and we write them off, you've murdered them in your heart. Jesus tells us that you are a murderer when that happens in your life. None of us are better than this Cain. We all are like him. We've all succumbed to temptation. Romans 6, 23 tells us that the wages of our sin is death. But look, the hope of this story is that there is a greater Abel that has spilled his blood. And rather than his blood crying out for vengeance, his blood is crying out for your forgiveness. That's the difference here. Because Jesus was a sacrificial Savior who spilled his own blood in your place, you can, his blood screams out for your forgiveness, saying that your price has been paid. The wages for your sin, which is death, have been paid by this Jesus, this sacrificial Savior. That's what happens. That's the aftermath here. And this should shock us. I almost put this, rather than the aftermath, I almost put this as the shock. Because as you look at this story and you look at Abel, it's Abel's constantly referred throughout the whole entire Bible. His blood that's spilt out on the ground that the earth drinks in, and then it, the voice of it cries out to God. This very story is retold over and over again. And it's constantly talking about this vengeance that's been stirred up. But then you get Hebrews chapter twelve. And then you see that this Jesus, his blood, cries out larger and greater and louder. And it's not a voice of vengeance, but a voice of forgiveness because vengeance has been paid. That should shock us. And it's here in the very beginnings of God's word, we get a preview of what he is doing from the very outset. The redemptive work that God is doing for you, the word that he has done for me, is here in Genesis chapter four. He is providing a sacrifice for you. The one that could not bring a proper sacrifice, God himself lays a appropriate sacrifice down in your place. So look, the response here, not only should we learn from Cain, we should all look and see that we are Cain, and we should come and lay our lives, our hearts down at the feet of this Jesus. Here's the beauty. You don't have to do anything to clean yourself up. You don't have to do anything to make a mask to make it look like you're better than what you really are. In fact, what the Bible tells us is the more honest you are about your sin, the more Honest you are about the wickedness that resides in your heart, the more receptive God is to you, that God is dealing in the work of mercy and grace. And whenever you come and you're honest with him about your sin, that you are met with a warm embrace by a father who's been waiting for you to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name will be saved. Call on the name of Jesus, and the fathers; they there ready to receive you. Make you sons and daughters of the living God. That's the aftermath of your sin, because of what Christ has done for you. Shocking. But incredible, life-changing, eternal news for you and me. All the way back from Genesis chapter 4. Now look, that's, that should be like our individual response. Um, here's like the vision piece I want us to work through, all right? So look, I want us to be a church that learns from the life of Cain, all right? As we look at this story, I want us to be a church that looks at the life of Cain and says, that's not going to be us. We're not going to follow in the footsteps of this Cain. We're going to follow in the footsteps of this better able that came in our place. And so I want us to be a church that longs to know god not a church that half-heartedly gives ourself to god but we give our whole hearts to god i want us to be a church that does not have silent lips like cain but i want us to be a church that prays like jesus has instructed us that's who i want us to be as a church and i would imagine that if we were to do like a church survey how is your prayer life looking i'm pretty sure none of us would be like yeah i'm slaying it right pretty sure none of us be like, yeah, I'm killing it personally. I would even say that we're, we're, we're killing it corporately as a church. Now look, our prayerlessness leaves this disconnect between our heads and our hearts. And I want us to be a church that the two are molded together. Paul Miller puts it like this when he he talks about this story of going to a prayer therapist. And I think the disconnect between the head and the heart, he just puts it so succinctly. He says this, the therapist, so imagine that you see a prayer therapist to get your prayer life straightened out. That's how he starts this out. And then he goes and he speaks for the the therapist. And the therapist says this, let's begin by looking at your, your relationship with your heavenly father. God said, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. That's 2 Corinthians 6, 18. What does it mean that you are a son or daughter of God? And so you, speaking to your prayer therapist, sounds like a great job, right? You say this. You reply that it means you have complete access to your heavenly Father through Jesus. You have true intimacy, based not on how good you are, but on the goodness of Jesus. Not on that Not only that, Jesus is your brother, and you are a fellow heir with him. And the therapist smiles and says, that's right. You have great theology, essentially. You've done a wonderful job of describing the doctrine of sonship. Now tell me what it is like for you to be with your father. What is it like to talk with him? And you cautiously tell the therapist how difficult it is to be in your father's presence, even for a couple of minutes Your mind wanders. You aren't sure what to say. You wonder, does prayer make any difference? Is God even there? Then you feel guilty for your doubts, and you just give up. Your therapist tells you what you already suspect. Your relationship with your Heavenly Father is dysfunctional. You talk as if you have an intimate relationship, but you don't. Theoretically, it is close. Practically, it is distant. You need help. I want us to be a church that learns from Cain's mistakes. That we don't, we're not okay with living with this disconnect between what we know about God in our heads and the relationship that Christ has won for us with our Heavenly Father and a disconnect with what we experience in our hearts. I don't want us to be that church. I don't want that for me personally. Personally. I don't want that for you individually. I want us to be a church that what we know about God in our heads is the same thing that we experience with him in our hearts. And look, I believe the way that we do that is that we become a praying church. We are a church that takes seriously talking with this heavenly father that you have unlimited access to in heaven. And so I want us to be a church for this, starting this next year, not just this next year, but starting this next year, that we have like this planned, structured time that we put into our gatherings where we are making it a priority, that we're approaching this throne of grace that Hebrews chapter 4 talks about, and we're entering into this presence with confidence as a church, that we take seriously, that we have access to the living God, and we seek after him and we we chase after him we approach him together as a church when we come and we gather here on Sundays as well as other ways throughout the 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 calendar year all right so here's here's what i want this to look like all right so we don't want to be cain we want to be a a people that are praying as jesus instructs us and so look for the rest of this month when you come and you gather here we're going to have intentional time in our corporate gatherings where I don't. We can do this again. We did this at our one-year anniversary. We can do it again. You can break down the chairs, turn them in circles, and we can approach this very God that we know hears. His ear is inclined to us, our voice as his children, and we're going to come and we're going to seek this God. We're going to seek that he would be intimate with us this calendar year and that we would see God do unique work both in ourselves as well as in the life of our church and then overflowing into our city. We're going to do that for the remainder of this month as well as August. For those two calendar months, we are going to have this gathered time where we are corporately praying together. We're going to practice the church calendar. So whenever Lent comes around, when Advent comes around, we're going to do the ancient practices of the church where we pray and fast together. We're going to have sprinkled throughout this year where we're going to have this worship and prayer gatherings in midweek where we're going to come together and we're just going to, for the whole entire time, bring our whole hearts to this God in worship and then also lay our whole hearts down to him as we come and we seek him, desire to be intimate with him, to know him and pray. That's my desire for us. That's what I want. I want us to chase after this God wholeheartedly together, not just for 2023, but starting in 2023. Amen? Can y'all get on board with that? So look, I believe by the end of this, I expect the things that we know about God to become what we experience in our relationship with God as we chase him in this very way for a full calendar year together. We're trying to make it a priority that we're in the Bible together in our discipleship groups. If you're not in one, get in one. We're going to chase God in His Word. But I want us to be a church that chases God in our prayer. So let's be a church that gives God our hearts in worship and we set aside silent lips. And it doesn't have to start just next week. Go and do it this week. Get in those prayer closets. Spend time with this God that has one relationship with him for you. And then come anticipating, expecting God to come and move as we seek him in his face in prayer together. Amen? Let's pray.